My name is Derek Bros. For the last 10 years, I've worked as an investigative journalist, hosting a radio show, writing books, and producing numerous documentaries about the realities of child trafficking, the dangers of technology, and indigenous struggles. Now, I aim to uncover whether there exists a network of individuals and institutions which ties these issues together. Many researchers posit the existence of an international cartel which covertly manipulates world events for their own benefit. Are these claims simply fantasy and paranoid delusion, or is there truly an agenda to subvert humanity to the demands of the pyramid of power? Chapter 10 The Foundations and the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. In this series, we highlighted a number of examples of institutions which use their wealth and influence to exert real world power as they shape the world to their liking. These institutions include nonprofits, think tanks, philanthropic organizations, charities, and non governmental organizations, or NGOs, which ostensibly act in the interest of the public good. These institutions, what we will refer to as the foundations, are a part of what has recently come to be known as the nonprofit industrial complex. The nonprofit industrial complex has been referred to as the network of privatized nonprofits that provide social service, usually with financial aid from corporations and government. It can also be described as a system of relationships between the state, the ultra wealthy, the foundations, and nonprofit NGOs, social service, and social justice organizations that results in the surveillance, control, derailment, and everyday management of political movements. These tax exempt foundations leverage wealth to fund or create movements which will follow their dictates, whether consciously or unconsciously. What is the nonprofit industrial complex? The term was popularized by the book The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, a collection of essays by activists, educators, and nonprofit staff from around the world. The essays were gathered together by the Insight Collective. The organization, which describes itself as a collective of radical feminists of color, had firsthand experience learning that their revolution would not be funded. The organization took a trip to India with funding from the Ford Foundation and met many activist organizations who were accomplishing great things in their community without foundation grants. Quote, when we saw that groups with much less access to resources were able to do amazing work without foundation funding, we began to question our reliance on foundation grants. This revelation led to the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, and a 2004 conference which examined the history of nonprofits and an attempt to better understand how to organize in service of communities in need. These essays offer a wide range of criticisms of the nonprofit industrial complex, including that the government uses nonprofits to monitor and control social justice movements, diverts public monies into private hands through foundations, manages and controls political dissent, redirects activist energy into the nonprofit career rather than grassroots community organizing capable of actually transforming society, and allows corporations to mask their exploitative practices through so-called philanthropic work. Critics say that this world of foundations, masked as philanthropy, causes nonprofits to become more invested in the agenda of their benefactors rather than in the communities they claim to serve. Activists complain that once they join the world of the nonprofit industrial complex, they spend their time and energy writing grants, seeking money from big corporations and donors. Some activists feel this is the only way to get funding for projects as opposed to continuously asking the community for funding. 
The first eight chapters of our investigation has examined a number of these foundations which contribute to the nonprofit industrial complex. For example, we uncovered how the Rockefeller Foundation and their General Education Board, as well as the Carnegie Foundation, used their funds to shape the direction of education around the world. We saw that the Rockefeller Foundation shaped the direction of public health, and the Gates Foundation carry on this tradition, as seen by their immense influence on international health policy during the COVID-19 crisis. Finally, we also revealed how the Rockefeller Foundation has played an outsized role in designing the food systems around the world and continues to attempt to shape policy as evidenced by their recent Reset the Table initiative. Remember that Reverend Frederick T. Gates, the business advisor to John D. Rockefeller Sr., who helped him found the Rockefeller General Education Board, wrote in his book, The Country School of Tomorrow, In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own good will upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or of science. We are not to raise up among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search embryo for great artists, painters, musicians, nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. For the task we set before ourselves is very simple as well as a very beautiful one to train these people as we find them to a perfectly ideal life just where they are. The Rockefeller funding of the General Education Board, later absorbed as part of the Rockefeller Foundation, was able to carefully craft education policy which achieved the goals of the foundation and not necessarily the goals of the teachers and parents. Just as Rockefeller and his network of philanthropic organizations sought to influence and shape the direction of public education, they also sought to influence medical schools across the country. While the Rockefeller family used the General Education Board to manipulate America's education system, they also created the International Education Board to invest their money into national and international universities and medical schools which focused on drug-based research. While the Rockefellers played a large role influencing the medical schools and universities, it was the assistance of the Carnegie family that helped transform the industry via their funding, the infamous Flexner Report. In 1905, steel billionaire Andrew Carnegie founded the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, or simply, the Carnegie Foundation. The foundation was granted an official charter by the U.S. Congress in 1906, just as was done with the Rockefeller's General Education Board. The Rockefeller Foundation is still funding and guiding much of public health policy, but now they are joined by Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. Gates has spent the last two decades mimicking the practices of the Rockefellers and ingratiating himself into nearly every aspect of global health. He is the number one non-state funder of the World Health Organization, a huge contributor to John Hopkins University, the Wellcome Trust, and many other powerful health and medical organizations. Gates has continued the focus on treating symptoms of diseases and promoting vaccines. Together, the Gates and Rockefeller families and their partners in pharmaceutical firms are using the COVID-19 crisis as an opportunity to cement themselves as the de facto leaders and policymakers, despite not being employed by the governments who follow their orders. We have also outlined how the Rockefeller Foundation funded the so-called Green Revolution and the push for dangerous pesticides and genetically engineered foods. In 1943, Norman Borlaug, a plant geneticist, and his team of researchers traveled to Mexico and jump-started this shift. Borlaug was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation. The actions taken by the Ford, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Gates Foundations perfectly illustrate the problems of the nonprofit industrial complex. 
Now, we must examine the role played by non-governmental organizations. NGOs as weapons of control. Non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, are defined as organizations independent from government, typically a non-profit, serving some sort of humanitarian cause. Now, it should be obvious that not every NGO, think tank, or foundation is working against the will of the people. However, without a doubt, there are examples of these institutions being used to push agendas of foreign governments or militaries. Let's focus on the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED, and the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID. These organizations purport to be independent of government and only serving philanthropic causes, but history bears out a much different reality. Both USAID and the NED have been linked to countless regime change efforts abroad, including Egypt in 2013 and Ukraine in 2014. Journalist Tony Cartolucci reports on the deep ties between the NED and the national security apparatus. Quote, but the NED board of directors includes many, many other characters with open ties to corrupt corporate financier interests and proven track records of eagerly promoting war and enabling U.S.-backed regime change around the globe. The National Endowment for Democracy is using the promotion of democracy as the smokescreen while engaged in political interference and regime change abroad in the pursuit of serving the corporate interests represented by the board of directors and those who fund NED directly. The NED was created as a non-profit corporation via funding from USAID, which has also been accused of being a tool for conducting activities favorable to the Central Intelligence Agency under the guise of providing foreign aid. Both organizations have been involved in funding activist movements in countries which do not align with U.S. policy. The concept of the endowment took shape as the country moved from the dark self-doubts after the Vietnam War into the new era of confidence in its own virtues and a conviction that democracy should be supported publicly and proudly without the secrecy that tainted the CIA's activities. We should not have to do this kind of work covertly, said Carl Gershman, president of the endowment, who was an aide to Jean J. Kirkpatrick when she was the chief United States delegate to the United Nations. It would be terrible for democratic groups around the world to be seen as subsidized by the CIA. We saw that in the 1960s, and that's why it has been discontinued. We have not had the capability of doing this, and that's why the endowment was created. Mr. Gershman says that there is no contact between the CIA and the endowment, and that before grants are made, a list of the potential recipients is sent by the endowment through the State Department to the CIA to be sure none of them are getting covert funds. As part of a 2010 investigation by ProPublica, Paul Steger, then editor-in-chief of the outlet, said, quote, Those who spearheaded creation of NED have long acknowledged it was part of an effort to move from the covert to overt efforts to foster democracy. Steger cited a 1991 interview with then-President Alan Weinstein as evidence. In the interview, Weinstein stated, quote, A lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. The biggest difference, the flat potential is close to zero. Openness is its own protection. Critics have long compared USAID and NED funding Nicaraguan groups in the 1980s and 90s to the efforts of the CIA to overthrow governments throughout Latin America in the 1950s and 60s. Now that we have a deeper understanding of the nonprofit industrial complex and the ways in which NGOs can be tools for regime change, we need to take a deeper look into the past to find the origins of these intersecting issues. The Origins of the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. In April 1954, 
the 82nd U.S. Congress convened the Select Committee to investigate tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations, known as the Reese Committee, to study foundations to see if they were involved in, quote, un-American and subversive activities for political purposes, propaganda, or attempts to influence legislation. The committee was led by Representative Carol Reese and focused on investigating the big foundations of the day, including the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Carnegie Foundation. The final report of the committee was submitted by Chief Investigator Norman Dodd, who stated that these foundations were funding projects at Columbia, Harvard, University of Chicago, and University of California with the goal of promoting oligarchical collectivism. Before we dive deeper into the conclusions of the Reese Committee, it's important to note that this investigation was the third investigation of its type over a period of 40 years. The Walsh Commission, also known as the Commission on Industrial Relations, studied industrial work conditions throughout the United States between 1913 and 1915. In 1916, the Walsh Commission published an 11-volume report with tens of thousands of pages of testimony from a wide range of witnesses, including Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. While the report was focused on the issue of labor exploitation, it also looked at concentrations of economic power and the role of charitable foundations and being used as instruments of power concentration. Luis D. Brandes, a lawyer who served as an associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court from 1916 to 1939, testified that he was gravely concerned with the growth of the foundations. Brandes testified that the foundation's power had grown into a state within the state, quote, so powerful that the ordinary social and industrial forces existing are insufficient to cope with it. He said this system of foundations was, quote, inconsistent with our democratic aspirations. During John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s testimony, he was asked about the power of foundations to influence independent thought and action. Rockefeller said influencing the public was possible, but there should be no public restrictions on the foundations. He called for academic freedom and complete independence and the use of funds given to educational institutions. In response to this, Chairman Frank Walsh warned that granting of funds for schools might result in, quote, persons being educated to take the viewpoint, consciously or unconsciously, of the man or the foundation that gave the money. The final report of the Walsh Commission concluded, quote, as regarded the foundations created for unlimited general purposes and endowed with enormous resources, their ultimate possibilities are so grave a menace, not only as regards their own activities and influence, but also the benumbing effect which they have on private citizens and public bodies, that if they could be clearly differentiated from other forms of voluntary altruistic effort, it would be desirable to recommend their abolition. Unfortunately, the recommendations were not followed, and another committee was convened in 1952, two years before the Reese Committee. This select committee to investigate tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations, also known as the Cox Committee, named after Representative Edward E. Cox, also investigated the foundations. The Cox Committee was rather limited in scope and resources. Thus, in 1954, the committee was revived by Representative Carol Reese. Attorney Rene Wormser was a general counsel to the Reese Committee. He drafted the final majority report of the committee and published his findings in the 1958 book, Foundations, Their Power and Influence. In the preface to the book, Representative Reese wrote that the obstacles to the committee included, quote, the influential liberal press characterized by the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune, and the Washington Post Times Herald, who he said threw their editorial power against the committee. Reese also said that, quote, the bulk of the conservative press could not be unmindful of the enormous power of these foundations. 
Reese warned that the, quote, group of prominent men whose decisions would have to be judged by the committee's investigation extended even to the intimates of the White House. Reese said that the investigation revealed, quote, an unparalleled amount of power is concentrated increasingly in the hands of an interlocking and self-perpetuating group. Reese notes that a 1954 article in the New York Daily News reported that the committee had the, quote, almost impossible task of telling the taxpayers that the huge fortunes piled up by such industrial giants as John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, and Henry Ford were today being used to destroy or discredit the free enterprise system which gave them birth. In his book, Mr. Wormser outlines how the Reese Committee used primary sources of foundation grants such as the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and examined secondary distributors of grant money, especially organizations such as the Social Science Research Council, the Institute of Pacific Relations, and the American Council on Education, which are supported by the major foundations. The investigation therefore included colleges, hospitals, churches, and other institutions which were recipients of money from foundations. The committee divided the organizations into three groups those which are purely granting foundations, those which use their money for their own research and operations, known as operating foundations, and those which might be called intermediaries, clearinghouses, or retailers for other foundations. These charitable tax exemptions were intended to advance the public welfare by offering exemption for philanthropic purposes. Wormser notes that, quote, the increasing tax burden on income and estates has greatly accelerated a trend towards creation of foundations as instruments for the retention of control over capital assets that would otherwise be lost. In other words, from the very beginning of the creation of these foundations, very wealthy families were using them to avoid taxes, redistribute their wealth, and influence the public. Some of our largest foundations, established before the introduction of federal income and estate taxes, were created largely to glamorize a name not previously identified as conspicuously charitable, Wormser wrote. For example, Wormser notes that if the Ford family hadn't created a foundation, they would have been forced to sell a large part of their ownership of the Ford company to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in estate taxes they would be expected to pay upon the deaths of Henry and Edsel Ford. By creating a foundation, they were able to escape estate taxes on 90% of their fortune and retain voting control of the company. The investigation also dug into the then-emerging field of social sciences and the ways in which the foundations were influencing education and political affairs. Quote, It is in the fields of education, international affairs, and what are called these social sciences that the greatest damage can be done to our society. For this reason, the Reese Committee confined its inquiry almost entirely to these areas, Reese wrote. In the end, Wormser believed the main contribution of the committee was to, quote, expose instances in which the promotion of political ends favored by foundation managers had been disguised as charitable or educational activity. When the report was finally released to the public, it was largely ignored or derided. Critics accused the committee of falling into paranoia and wasting time and money. Most major media failed to report on the actual conclusions of the Reese Committee and their warnings of attempts to promote oligarchical collectivism. The only journalist who bothered to report on the topic in a substantial manner was G. Edward Griffin. Griffin is known for his work exposing the Federal Reserve System and the medical cartel. Griffin interviewed Norman Dodd, who was the Congressional Director of Research for the Reese Committee, regarding his work for the committee and the final report. I came across this one document on the topic of tax-exempt foundations and their association uh, with the Soviet Union uh, shortly after World War uh, two, 
And when I say association with the Soviet Union, I shouldn't say that. Their association with the Soviet ideology. I said, what? Well, it didn't make sense to me. But as I read, I discovered, oh, my gosh, there was a lot of interesting history there that I didn't know. And the, the, in particular, it was the history to the effect that uh, after the end of World War II, some of the largest tax-exempt foundations, like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, for one, um, and the Ford Foundation, were publishing uh, tracts written by Joseph Stalin and other uh, communist uh, writers and theoreticians, uh, basically saying that the future belongs to communism and that capitalism must be destroyed or put to rest, replaced. And here were these giant tax-exempt foundations publishing these things and financing uh, groups that were promoting these doctrines. And uh, it, it naturally it upset a lot of people. Uh, William Randolph Hearst was one of them. And I didn't know any of this was going on, but Hearst even put a lot of front page editorials on his newspapers, headlines on the page about the communist influence of tax exempt foundations. And who is this guy Stalin? Who are we, why are we supposed to be following Stalin and so forth? So there was a, a a public outcry as to what's going on with these tax exempt foundations promoting communist propaganda. I didn't know that. But anyway, that was what happened. And, and that led to the formation of this uh, committee, investigative committee into tax exempt foundations. Uh, and so that's where I got into the scene. I was reading about that in these um, government documents put out by the House Committee on Un American Activities. And that's where I saw Norman Dodd's name. Now, Norman Dodd was the chief investigator for that Reese committee. That what we had uncovered was the determination of these large endowed foundations through their trustees to actually get control over the content of American education. There's quite a bit of publicity given to your conversation with uh, Rowan Gaither. Uh, would you please tell us who he was and what was that conversation you had with him? Rowan Gaither was at that time president of the Ford Foundation. Mr. Gaither said, Mr. Dodd, we've asked you to come up here this today because we thought that possibly off the record you would tell us why the Congress is interested in the activities of foundations such as ourselves. Before I could think of how I would reply to that statement, Mr. Gaither then went on voluntarily and stated, he said, Mr. Dodd, all of us that have a hand in the making of policies here have had experience either with the OSS during the war or the European Economic Administration after the war, we've had experience operating under directives. And these directives emanate and did emanate from the White House. Now we still operate under just such directives. Would you like to know what the substance of these directives is? I said, yes, Mr. Gaither, I'd like very much to know. Whereupon he made this statement to me, namely, Mr. Dodd, we are here operate on similar, in response to similar directives, the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power 
so to alter life in the United States that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Well, parenthetically, um, Mr. Griffin and I nearly fell off the chair. I, of course, didn't, but um, my response to Mr. Gaither then was, well, Mr. Gaither, I can now answer your first question. You forced the Congress of the United States to spend $150,000 to find out what you just told me. So why don't you <clears throat> I said, of course, legally, you're entitled to um, make grants for, the, for this purpose. But I don't think you're entitled to withhold that information from the people of the country to whom you're indebted for your tax exemption. So why don't you tell the people of the country that's what you've told me? And his answer was, we would not think of doing any such thing. So then I said, well, Mr. Gaither, obviously, you forced the Congress to spend this money in order to find out what you've just told me. As disturbing as the revelations exposed by Dodd, Reese, and Griffin were, they are not the only dark truths related to nonprofits and foundations. The Roundtable Groups In an upcoming episode of this series, we will tackle the issue of so-called secret societies. But for the moment, let's take a look at claims that certain public-facing nonprofits and foundations actually operate as representatives for groups which operate in the shadows. These groups, commonly known as Roundtable Groups, were first outlined by American historian and former Georgetown University professor Dr. Carol Quigley in his book Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. In the book, Quigley outlines the history of Western civilization from 1860 to 1963. However, Quigley's version of events is based on the archives of the Council on Foreign Relations, one of America's oldest foundations which worked to steer international political affairs. In Tragedy and Hope, as well as the book The Anglo-American Establishment, Quigley outlines how a secret group was seeking to shape American policy to bring it back under the control of the fading British Empire. Forensic historian Richard Grove, host of the Grand Theft World podcast and creator of the Tragedy and Hope website, has been studying the roundtable groups and the work of Carol Quigley for over a decade. So around the 1860s, 1880s, right after our Civil War, there's a lot of people in Britain who are lamenting the loss of America. There's, um, I have a Pilgrim Society book here and it cites Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who wrote the Sherlock Holmes series. He's saying he actually had a plan for an Anglo-American partnership and these sort of things. And around that same time in Oxford, there's a, a professor named John Ruskin. Ruskin has this philosophy about the English-speaking idea and how it should rule the world. And if you want to look at the origins of institutionalized racism, I mean, there's a thousand-year-old college of the British Empire that's been promoting it around the world for centuries. I don't know why they don't talk about it on their networks. But... So Ruskin has this student, Cecil Rhodes, who takes all this stuff super seriously. And Rhodes is interesting. His brother, his older brother, is already in South Africa gold mining, I think. Right? Maybe it was gold. Maybe it was diamonds. He's already down there. And Rhodes didn't go to Oxford yet. But he gets a, he gets a line of credit from Lord Rothschild to go down on Rothschild's behalf to get into mining in South Africa. 
So he goes down, he gets with his brother, his brother finds another, there's another wildcat hotspot. He's leaving as soon as he gets there. He starts buying up other people's mines. He buys up the pump equipment and lets their mines flood out and then they'll sell it and then he can go in and pump it out and now they got another mine. And eventually he goes back to Britain to go to Oxford to be more official in his dealings for the Rothschilds. He comes back down. They create De Beers Consolidated Mines. De Beers was a farmer. And so Rhodes takes that farmer's operation along with a whole bunch of others that he organized. And he's basically prototyping a colony for the British Empire. This history highlights how British miner and South African politician Cecil Rhodes worked with Alfred Milner in 1891 to found what would come to be known as the Roundtable Groups. The facilitation and directing of these groups would change hands over the years, but it was the death of Rhodes and his wills which created the Rhodes Scholarship Program at Oxford University, which has been used as a method to recruit new members of the Roundtables and disseminate their ideas and accomplish their goals internationally. Using the Roundtable Group strategy, this loose organization of powerful interests operated with a hidden inner circle and a public outer circle. Many members of the roundtable groups have participated in the Rhodes Scholar program before going on to positions of power and influence in government, finance, media, and the private sector. The groups include the Royal Institute of International Affairs, also known as Chatham House, the aforementioned Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and more recently, groups like the World Economic Forum. While most of the group's Quigley mentions tend to be associated with the left wing of American politics, there are also secretive organizations which carry a conservative focus, including the Council for National Policy, which has also been compared to the Council on Foreign Relations. Tragedy and Hope also discussed the role of the leaders of central banks of several nations and how the international banking cartel plays a major role in shaping public policy. We will explore this claim in an upcoming episode of this series. While Quigley did criticize certain interpretations of his work, he also openly acknowledged that there was a conspiracy at work. In Tragedy and Hope, Quigley writes, quote, This radical right fairy tale, which is now an accepted folk myth in many groups in America, pictured the recent history of the United States in regard to domestic reform and in foreign affairs as a well-organized plot by extreme left-wing elements. This myth, like all fables, does in fact have a modicum of truth. There does exist, and has existed for a generation, an international Anglophile network which operates, to some extent, in the way the radical right believes the communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other group, and frequently does so. I know of the operation of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it, or most of its aims, and have, for much of my life, been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, but in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. So what Rhodes is doing down there is he's fulfilling the the, the John Ruskin, Oxfordian, English-speaking idea, world government part, but he's also meeting the ideas and needs of the Freemasons. And as we'll learn soon, he also helped to meet the needs of the Zionists. And once you combine those groups together, there's a whole lot of people working against America that America never really took a look at. And sometimes aides as their partners. So Rhodes, uh, he dies at like age 40 or 41. He dies in 1902. And he's famous for 
having had many last wills and testaments. So there's various versions. He wrote his first one at Oxford under Ruskin, and he carried it around in his jacket along with one of Ruskin's speeches on the English speaking idea. And then he went through various other versions. In the earlier versions, he's giving his great deal of wealth back to Lord Rothschild, who sponsored him. Makes a lot of sense. Then there was a little scrutiny on that. So they took Rothschild off of like being the executor or the recipient, and they put Lord Roseberry, Lord Rothschild's son-in-law. He's got a different last name. Let's put him in there, right? And um, so it's published in 1902 when he dies as the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes with elucidatory notes to which some chapters are added by the author because he was Rhodes's friend. They came up with the plan together. So the guy who wrote the book, William T. Stead, was in charge of the review of reviews, was a big uh, roundtable hub in, in Britain. And he and Rhodes had come up with the idea for the British Empire to take America back into it. And for the purposes of doing that, to create a secret society and a group of scholarships that would, um, that would anglicize Americans and others around the world into the English speaking idea so that Rhodes's idea had funding. It had an academic aspect, it had a secret society aspect, and it was to be modeled on the Jesuits and replace Roman empire with Catholic church or with a British empire. Roman Catholic uh, religion with British Empire is one of the quotes. So now it's not just tragedy and hope telling you about Rhodes. You got his last will and testament, and you can go out on your own and verify. More than 70 years has passed since the warnings from Norman Dodd, Carol Reese, and the Walsh Commission, and more than 50 years since Carol Quigley exposed the roundtable groups. Needless to say, the warnings were not heeded, and the power of the foundations and the roundtable groups has only grown and become more influential on the public. However, in that time, the public has become even more ignorant to the ways in which these organizations influence and shape our world. The Gates Foundation is now one of the largest and most influential foundations, and the Rockefellers continue to hold massive sway. What will it take to break the hold that these corrupt institutions have on the minds of the masses? Solutions If we aim to break free from the grip of the foundations and the nonprofit industrial complex, we need to rethink the way we do activism and charity. As noted from the activists in the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, working within the nonprofit or philanthropic space in the hopes of bettering your community or improving the world is a noble venture, but it might not always produce the results you desire. If your activism is solely based on working within these structures, we highly encourage you to recognize that grassroots activism outside of the nonprofit sector can be equally valuable. While the community may not have the millions of dollars that the foundations offer, there are many exciting opportunities to fund projects and accomplish goals. For example, in 2015, I had the opportunity to visit Detroit and learn about the community crowdfunding and microfinancing program known as Detroit Soup. For $5, attendees gain entry to an event with music, homemade soup, and four presentations from local community members. The presentations are focused on projects which could empower the local community directly. The attendees listen to the presentation, enjoy a bowl of soup, and then vote on their favorite project. At the end of the evening, the project with the most votes is awarded the collected money to help them achieve their goals. This project has inspired other cities to take up similar efforts. When it comes to the large foundations which use their wealth and influence to manipulate our worlds, we ought to consider ending any financial support of these foundations, as well as any of their beneficiary organizations. If any organization is taking money from the foundations, 
educate them about the dangers posed by these organizations, and make it clear you will not support them if they take money from these dangerous foundations. If you do desire to contribute to charitable or philanthropic organizations, do your research. Investigate the organizations you are considering supporting and find out about their business relationships, their projects, and the ways in which they use their funds. For starters, you can visit the World Economic website and check their partners page to see if you are supporting any of the foundations serving their agendas. In an upcoming episode, we will dive deeper as we explore what is exactly meant by oligarchical collectivism. But for now, let's remember that with all pieces of this pyramid, we need to take personal responsibility. We need to make a diligent effort to be aware of what we are supporting with our dollars and time. If we blindly continue to support these foundations under the assumption that they are doing some good in the world, we are only hurting ourselves, and we only have ourselves to blame. To learn more about the foundations, the nonprofit industrial complex, and the roundtable groups, we recommend reading Foundations, Their Power and Influence by Renee A. Wormser. The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Behind the Nonprofit Industrial Complex by Insight. And Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo American Establishment by Carol Quigley. <laughs>